As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Be the best and you got to pay a little price. If you want it bad enough, you got to do a little extra things to get it. Welcome to the 11 Personnel Podcast, your favorite Rams podcast. I'm your host, Joan Rodrigue, and with me as always, well, guys, you're going to get a solo a solo me again this week, uh, and it is Thanksgiving week for those who celebrate. Um, hopefully, people are, are getting some time with their family. It is still football. We continue to roll on. We continue to turn on. In the world of football and the LA Rams, obviously coming off a 17 16, uh, for some, probably a nail biter, for others, uh, an ugly, gnarly win <laughs> over um, the Seattle Seahawks on Sunday. Um, a missed 55 yard field goal attempt was what got the Rams this win um, and a fourth quarter surge, 10 point effort. Um, we're going to go over that. There's some interesting dialogue to be had, I think, over especially some of the last sequences in the game. I'm looking forward to talking to you guys about that. And also over at theathletic.com, my post-game column, I did also open up the comment section in that space as more of a message board so that people can have uh, that sort of respectful, thoughtful dialogue with each other. So far, it's been awesome. Lots of really interesting takes and opinions. Going to get into a bunch of that um, later in the episode. To start, um, we've got news. Uh, Sean McVay spoke to media today. It's Monday. Um, I'm recording this early evening. It is already dark. Woe is me for daylight savings time. Um, I'm recording this on Monday early evening and uh, pretty much right after Sean McVay uh, spoke to us this afternoon via Zoom. He's got, got a status update on Cooper Cup. So Cooper Cup is dealing with um, a lateral sprain in his right ankle. Um, obviously, if you guys have not been under a rock, you know that Cooper left Sunday's game against Seattle right before halftime, didn't return. Um, however, at one point, he did think, according to Sean McVay, he did think he might be able to come back in. He stayed on the sideline with his helmet and his cleats on, but didn't really think um, it was going to be wise or safe for him to do so. So this is... Frustrating, I think, if you're Cooper. It's certainly frustrating if you're the team. 
you know, Cooper has missed a lot of time over the last year and a half or so. He missed uh, most of training camp in the first four games of this season with a hamstring injury. He missed the end of the 22 season with a high ankle sprain, um, obviously had the tightrope procedure to repair that. But it's just been uh, a series through, through his career as well. It's just been a series of um, tough situations or recurring injuries or new injuries popping up. And obviously, if you're Cooper, who puts everything he has into this game, that's got to be frustrating. And I think on a personal level, you do feel for him, you know, on a on a structural level or on a team level, you know, Sean McVay mentioned this today. They've, they've got to continue to be able to um, delegate the the share, right? Delegate, delegate the rep share. And it was interesting. We actually talked to Austin Trammell today. He's mostly been the punt returner and he's been, but he's also been behind the scenes in practice. He's been a a scout team guy. So he's taken most, if not all the reps on the scout team, basically mimicking whatever receiver he needs to mimic that week. But he has also subbed in quite a bit into the Rams actual offense in practice, um, you know, don't forget there have been a lot of guys banged up this year at various points. Cooper wasn't practicing through the first part of the season. Puka Nakua, even though he sort of had that explosion of production in the first part of the season, he's dealt with various injuries and he's sort of been limited through the, especially the early portions of the weeks of practice. And so Austin Trammell is getting more opportunities with the actual offense, which I think is significant. It's a big difference than when you hear about like a scout team quarterback, they don't get those those reps, right? When the quarterback is taking the full rep share with the offense, but in Austin Trammell's case, and also in Demarcus Robinson's case, because he's sort of in the same situation, obviously as a veteran receiver, you know, he's not just getting the scout looks. He's also in the offense, um, a lot more than, than, um, you know, you would think of like a typical scout team player because they've had limitations with some of the guys they've been you know, their, their reps have been limited through the week just because they are dealing, they're, they're getting such a significant snap share in games and the way, you know, Puka, it's been, you know, a shoulder, a knee, um, ribs, you know, he plays very physical brand of football. And so, you know, you're going to rest him more through the week, especially if he's picked up on the offense. So Austin Trammell, it was interesting. He was, (laughs) he was talking to us today about, um, he said, I'm in the best shape ever (laughs) because he runs a lot in practice. (laughs) He returns a ton of punts. Uh, we don't see all of practice as you guys know. So this is me communicating what he said. Um, he returns a lot of punts in practice and he also plays again. He does all of the scout team and then he also reps into the actual offense. So he was laughing today talking about how it's really gotten him in game shape, even though he's just in practice, just because of the sheer volume of what he's doing. And uh, Matthew Stafford alluded to the fact that he also has been getting integrated into some of what they want to do in the run game as well. So Cooper Cup is day to day and and Sean McVay did not rule him out. Um, I will say with with the caveat that ankles can be fickle. Um, they called this type of sprain, you know, it's a lateral sprain, called it positive news, obviously relative to more significant injuries in that in that area. And Sean McVay said specifically, I think, and he was asked if he directly if he thought Cooper would be playing on Sunday on Sunday against the Arizona Cardinals. He said, I think that is the goal. I know he's going to do everything in his power. I think it's definitely favorable where that's a real possibility that he would be available. That's not something where you're saying he's definitely going to be out for this week. You want to see the functionality. 
I know that his mindset was encouraged based on how it felt today, based on some of the results of what the scans and different things like that showed, and then his willingness to attack this and put himself in a position to be available for the team. Um, I don't talk as fast as Sean McVay, so that sounded like a lot of extra words when I said it, but basically <laughs> when Sean says it, he gets through it more efficiently. So uh, he's basically saying he's not going to rule him out. Cooper's going to try to give it a go. I don't think the team would be overly risky with him. However, the, the, there is still a shot for this group. I know that that's wild optimism and um, you know a lot of things have to go right for an offense that has really, really struggled to put cohesive four quarters together or even cohesive halves together um, and, and a defense that while it has clearly been growing um, over the last several weeks and, and, and months um, still can have these, you know, these gaffes in, in games, especially against elite opponents. And so um that's wild optimism, I think. But also, you know, just as a person, you don't want to put Cooper in a situation um, where it might be risky for him. However, knowing Cooper and sort of in the indication that Sean has put forth here is that he is going to try to do what he can um, to get back. Whether or not he can, uh, probably won't know until Friday unless Cooper comes out Thursday and says directly during his press conference, I am playing Sunday. Um, as you guys know, with this team, there's often a lot of murkiness, a lot of gray area in terms of some of this uh, situational timelines, um, some of the gamesmanship, I guess uh, you'd call it. But it is significant that he has not been ruled out um, and that Sean McVay said his mindset was encouraged based on how it felt today, um, meaning that it's possible it didn't maybe feel this morning for the player as worse as as maybe it could have been. So that's that's significant news. Um I would say that the reason why I bring up Austin Trammell and Demarcus Robinson is because uh, Sean McVay also threw in the updates that Puka Nakua banged his shoulder up a little bit, his quote, and his day-to-day. And also that uh, receiver Ben Skoranek, who's mostly played on special teams this year, he had a hip pointer. So those are potentially significant in terms of the depth that the Rams have available behind Cooper. And um, Puka Nakua has been kind of dealing with odds and ends in terms of some of these these injuries. Um, he had the uh, the shoulder on the pass interference call, um, and, and and according to Sean, and so that's those are potentially significant. Specific, especially with Puka, that's potentially significant. Um, just can't know, just not sure until practice continues. But that's why I bring up Austin Trammell and uh, Demarcus Robinson. Like we know what Tutu Atwell can do. He's definitely showed potential um, throughout the year and special, especially has showed improvement um, and where he could factor into the offense. But in terms of filling in some of those other versatile receiving positions, Sean McVay is going to want to play in 11 personnel as much as he can still. Um, you know, we'll get to this later, but Matthew Stafford, even though they've got these these younger tight ends on the roster who seem to be uh, have potential, um, it's clear that they still are building a rapport with with Matthew Stafford. So Sean is probably going to want to be in 11 personnel as he, tend, you know, that's the bread and butter of his offense. So having receivers who can play multiple positions is super important and Austin uh, says he can and showed a little bit of that on Sunday. Um, we know that Demarcus Robinson can. Um, I, I've seen, you know, obviously Demarcus Robinson had a huge training camp. 
Got most of his reps, though, at that time with Stetson Bennett and Brett Rippon, um, but showed exactly what he could be capable of should he get the reps behind the scenes. If you've been sort of tracking some of the stories at The Athletic behind the scenes, teammates have really praised Demarcus Robinson behind the scenes of, of talking about, um, you know, he, he keeps wowing everybody on scout team and, and basically doing the things you would expect from a veteran player with his skill set. And um, just waiting for for an opportunity to factor in more into into the offense. So we'll see how that goes. Also from Sean McVay, Kyron Williams is expected to return this week. Kyron has missed the last four games while on injured reserve and dealing with an ankle injury. Um, somewhat ironically, the last the the last game he had where. Uh, nobody, including himself, really knew he, how hurt he was because he was walking around the locker room without a boot, um, had a press conference. Normally injured players don't talk post-game. Um, you know, he, he then the next day and then ultimately through the week, we found uh, the situation in terms of the language about the situation um, regressed for sure. And um, that's why I'm cautious about this Cooper Cup thing as well. It's not a, the same injury, but ankles are fickle and um, you just want to see how how the week goes. But back to Kyron, um, somewhat ironically that his last game was against Arizona. He rushed for 158 yards off 20 carries, 7.9 yards per carry and a touchdown. And I would also expect them to work him into the passing game. Um, they need uh, more um, outlets, abilities, and, and Matthew Stafford needs to connect on these, by the way. That was a bad miss to Daryl Henderson. That might have been a house call on Sunday in Seattle. Stafford said he wanted it back. He looked just, he seemed like so sick about it post game as well. Um, but um, that, that type of concept, that type of play, but then also potentially getting some of their quick game going, just adding more layers, c- continuing to stay creative with this offense and then reestablishing a really consistent run game that is exactly what they've been working on with specifically Kyron. Now that is not to disregard the things that they've been doing with Daryl Henderson and Royce Freeman. I think that the work that those two have put in and the job that they've done is commendable considering the circumstances as well. Um, but you have to remember that the Rams installed their run game with Kyron Williams slowly and then very quickly all at once, overtaking then at that time Cam Akers for the lead back role and really figuring in and factoring in to this offense in a hugely impactful way. And so switching and changing that all of a sudden was not easy. And maybe your menu perhaps is a little bit more limited. You're also rotating these guys. Kyron was taking the dominant share of the run uh, uh, of the of the offensive snaps um by the time he did get hurt so that that was also a, a differentiation in, in the plan and the utilization so now you're hoping you get back to being more consistent obviously that opens up so many more things in in what they want to do with their passing game it adds balance um the the physical nature with at which they were running the ball at a certain point earlier this season was super promising getting back to that would be important especially being able to do that through november which we know is always a really tough month for this team that will be really important so if kyron comes back in in great shape and is ready to go i think that's super positive for the rams in both the run and the pass looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events We've got the spot. Our partner StubHub 
has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Okay, speaking of the offensive line, I think over the last couple of weeks, you know, after the initial burst of what the first part of the season was, you really wanted to gather an informed, you know, body of data from this offensive line before jumping to conclusions either way. And and also, I think, you know, segueing from the run game into this offensive line and also into the quarterback himself, I think that's a really important conversation to have because it's certainly one the Rams are going to be having. I think that all year this year, certainly over the last couple of years, you have seen a, a commitment to drafting running backs um, in the middle to later rounds. That will probably continue, you know, even with Kyron back and and you hope healthy for the rest of the season. Um, sim- somewhat similar to the Cooper Cup situation, how that is is um, now becoming, you know, kind of a consistent concern. You know, Kyron has had consistent injuries over the last couple of years, and so you're going to need to keep building that room out. But as you do so, you also need to keep building out your offensive line. I think that some of the things that the Rams did, you've seen such a positive difference be made in the first third of the season when they had a healthy Kyron, when they were running the ball, actually calling it consistently. Um, Sean McVay kind of got out of his own way in that regard. You could really see that physicality um, turning into the gap identity um, versus um, more strictly mid zone. And and obviously they're still going to run mid zone, but really sort of flipping into that more physically overpowering presence, bulking up the interior of their offensive line. Um, Steve Avila really having a super strong debut. Kevin Dotson coming along and and really becoming one of the better interior linemen in the league this year so far. Really good acquisition by the Rams there. But you've had some injuries with their tackles. Rob Havenstein missed a couple games. Alaric Jackson, I think, has been inconsistent at, at different times. Obviously, as a younger player, still working on, you know, what does it look like to be at that position full time through the entire season? Um and, you know, Coleman Shelton has been, I think, you know, solid, steady in, in the middle. There's been a couple penalties here or there, but that's, you know, that's going to happen. Overall, the offensive line has showed it is, I think, on a positive track. I would also say hugely important, multiple things being true. I don't think they're set here yet. I think that this is also a position to continue to pay attention to, to continue to invest, uh, particularly some of these draft resources in. You know, Kevin Dotson will start having the conversation about a potential extension and what that might look like if the Rams choose to do that coming up here. Um, And and extending the right players, not players with a troubling injury history. Um, You know, they have not played Brian Allen this year. Joe Noteboom has played very little relative to what the Rams signed the extension for him to do. Um, this year. So, you know, signing the right players, making sure that you're investing in the right ways in in your line. The Rams will have a a couple of high draft picks. Um, Continuing to invest in that way, I think is going to be so important. I think also around this part of the year, and I think I'm going to remove the running game conversation from this, from this uh, point, just, just 
momentarily because I think it's going to be important to see what everything looks like with a healthy Kyron Williams and with these linemen really having dug in and settled into what it's going to look like on this line right now with Rob Havenstein back, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I want to talk about the pass protection because this is, it's very, um, I think it's, again, it shows positive signs, but it's not quite there yet. And it's very, it's very, um, you could really see positive flashes. I think some of the issues that they had Sunday against Seattle, obviously there were some protection issues, but also, you know, when Cooper was out and even sometimes when he was in, there was, a, when you look at the, the all 22, you know, sometimes he was holding the ball either. There was one time where he, he had Davis Allen underneath and, and did not throw it to him. Um, there was, uh, a, a truck, you know, there was some trouble getting open. It, uh, there was also some longer developing concepts they ran, um, in terms of, you know, some of the pressure getting to him before he could get the ball out. I, I can think of a specific motion play with, uh, I, I believe Tutu Atwell would be the intended target on that jogging start motion, um, for a potential explosive. I just think that, um, you know, just continuing to look at everything holistically, whether with it's the quarterback, it's the protection, it's the receivers getting open, um, it's the type of concepts you're running with your receivers, inclusive to building more um, outlets that you know the quarterback will will take and feel comfortable taking. Um, it's all of those things at once. But what you can see, statistically speaking only, that um, the Rams, uh, they've allowed 22 sacks this year. That's in the upper third of the NFL. That's not bad. The goal was that they wanted to um, – keep Matthew off the ground, right? And so um, being in the upper third there, even with some personnel changes and some difficulties with that right tackle spot, um, you know, I think that's solid. Then the pressure rate is like right in the middle <laughs> of the NFL. Um, number 16 in the NFL, 35.7% rate of pressure on dropbacks. Um, you know, that's again, that's right at league average. 136 pressured allowed through 10, through 10 games. 13.6 a game. That literally is the league average. <laughs> so it's you can see it too. And, and some of it again, there's there's context. We'll get to that in a minute. There's an important conversation to have about context as well. Um, where, you know, you're talking about all of these different variables that that work into um creating a successful pass protect, which is not necessarily only specific to the offensive linemen themselves. I think you can point to several occasions where it's been a missed block or um, it, some of the some of the coaching situations of you don't have chipping help for a guy who's subbed in or um, that was way early feels like a lifetime ago early in the season and certainly has not happened again. By the way, I think they learned their lesson from that. Um, or it is, um, you know, quarterback doesn't like what he sees from the defender and, and holds the ball or the receivers, maybe there's some trouble getting open on some of the longer developing concepts, or maybe the underneath stuff is a little too clogged or the, or not available. Um, it's, it's a lot of things at once, but I think if you're just looking at this line on paper, it is still vastly improved from what it was last year. Obviously, injuries were a huge factor last year as well. Um, and you can see the beginnings of the plan that they have to restock and, and continue to replenish this line. I think, you know, you hear a lot about, um, you know, investment of resources. And, and I think there will be a natural gravitation from this offensive staff 
towards skill players. I, I do think that. But at the same time, you cannot argue with what a home run draft pick that Steve Avila has so far been. You can't argue with how significantly even his presence and then also understanding you can continue to build around him because he's so solid and so steady um, even as a rookie, I, I do think that that's, there's, there's a great argument to be had there and continuing to invest at that position, doing it the right way. Again, learning lessons from some of the bad contracts uh, to, to you know some of the, the players who have just been so injured or have not been available or have lost their job. Um, and, and then just continuing to replenish that position, um, having a good middle class at the position as well, which they seem to be trying to develop even behind these guys. Warren McClendon is a guy that they're really excited about in terms of being a depth a depth tackle for them, possible swing depth guy. Um, Tremaine Ankrum has been steady depth for them. Um, right now, Joe Nopum is a depth player. That's that's not what they paid him for, but um, in a pinch, he could come in and fill in pretty much anywhere um, along the line. So also replenishing that that middle class of players too, where it's you're not just looking at you know your five up front, but also um, who can come in in a pinch in an emergency. Um, I think that they Sean McVay mentioned this today. You know they were very fortunate the first several years that they were in LA and that he was the head coach because they were so healthy relative to the rest of the league. I mean they missed the least amount of games lost to in, uh, to uh, to injury. They had the least amount of games lost to injury of any team in the league for for you know three four years straight um, or among the least. And then it absolutely cratered in 2022, and they had to learn a lot of tough lessons from that. So I think replenishing. You see this all over the roster, replenishing the middle class of the roster, um, you know, contributors and developing guys and um, players who, even if they're not the, you know, top tier of the rookies that they've brought in, we can see a lot of these rookies taking on core starting roles and really thriving there and developing there, but also guys who are expected to be the twos, the threes, um, guys who will be on their rookie contracts as the twos and the threes, making sure that you're really solid in that regard. Um, can't understate that, and it certainly um, is along the offensive line as well. And I think um, when we're talking about Kyron Williams coming back and and sort of at the a little past the halfway point of where they are in terms of how they've protected Matthew Stafford and, and sort of all of the layers in the context, I did not want to leave that stone unturned. It's kind of around that point of the season um, to do that. Um, and then then I started looking at, so I'm in true media. I'm just like like digging away in true media all day today. And so, and, I, and I'm also, I was at the same time, I was finishing up uh, an Aaron Donald story that I've been working on for a while and had sort of held back because I didn't want the timing to be poor in terms of releasing this really, um, high effort story about an historic player uh, when everyone in the fan base is in a foul mood. <laughs> so felt like this was a better time to release this story. Um, but anyway, I was digging into like pressure rates and things like that and also kept asking myself the question that Rich and I have talked about that I've talked about on this podcast before of this year being about really finding who's going to stick around, and then what holes are left to fill. And those holes being extremely obvious um, because of the nature of how the roster is currently built. And I think one of those very, very obvious holes is along the defensive line. 
Now, that is not including guys like Kobe Turner, who is, I think, developing into an outstanding player. It's not including guys like Byron Young. Um, we don't, I don't think we know enough about O'Shawn Mathis or Nick Hampton yet. Um, you know, it, it's it's not about that per se or like person by person, but the position overall, they just they need more. Um, they need more pass rush, they need more pressure. They are really inconsistent in terms of getting pressure. That has remained the same through the entire season. Um, they are 24th in sacks. I don't really track sacks very much. I, I just I don't think that they are um, the most relevant of things. I think sacks for loss and key moments of games, splash plays, those are huge. Obviously, those are extremely important. I'm not discounting those. But in terms of the overall production, I more so look at pressure rate, time to pressure, um, how they contain on third and long or third and medium. So they are 24th in sacks, okay? But they are uh, about, let's see, 34.4% pressure rate right now. That's 18th in the league. Um, so that's, again, you know, get sink, getting into a little bit of the, the second half uh, of the bottom half of the league. Um, and then 52 hits on the quarterback, which is, again, 24th, which is not great. We've seen this in real time. We've seen time and again quarterbacks just seeming like they have tons of time to sit back in there and pick where they want to go with the ball or where they don't want to go with the ball. And I think it is a credit and a compliment to how hard some of those defensive backs are playing and to how, you know, long they are being asked to cover that sometimes you are seeing the quarterback holding the ball that long. I think you saw that more than once with, with Geno Smith, who, um, you know, just did at, at many, many times during the course of, of the game, um, either seem very comfortable in, in the pocket. Um, I think of a, a, a big explosive he hit down the field to, uh, I believe it was DK Metcalf and Akella Witherspoon was covering him off the line of scrimmage really tightly. If you go, if you go back and look, this wasn't the, uh, the thing that fans lament about the, the match zone or the soft shell, um, where the DBs are, are just truly only built to prevent explosives. But the thing is too, and that's, and that's a trust in the corner as well, because he likes to play that way. And he's going to play that way. Akella Witherspoon has had a really good year overall, if you look at it. And, um, you know, if you are going to play that way, you, you are susceptible to the explosive pass play. And in this case they were, and in part, because the pressure was not there fast enough and you look and, and it just was the quarterback was not uncomfortable in making that throw. Um, and so, you know, you, and then in other times you're going to play that, uh, deeper match zone where, you know, you've seen quarterbacks hold the ball a little bit longer and still, and still the, the, the pressure is not getting there on a consistent enough base, a basis. You know, Bobby Brown said today in his comments to media, he had an interesting perspective because he was on the outside looking in um, for several weeks while he was on injured reserve and watching sort of the, the bird's eye view of this, but then also being in it and understanding how the rush plan needs to take place. He straight up said that, you know, he thinks the DBs are doing a really good job of covering, uh, you, you know, I'm not, 
going to correct anybody who's a professional playing this game. I will say the caveat there is that there have been some errors. We know that on uh, on uh, Sunday, you know, there's a huge explosive where two of the safeties didn't get their heads around in time um, to cap that off. Uh, there were a couple of big gains that that just came off of miscommunications or errors or simply being outplayed. Um, this is not to say that that any one group is doing a perfect job, but he did as a pass rusher, as a member of the defensive line, he, he said that he thinks that, you know, the DBs are covering for a long time and they need to pass rush better. And both of these things go hand in hand. It's not one or the other. They just have to complement each other better. You know, quarterbacks uh, are, are getting time to throw on this group. It's like 2.8 seconds, I think, if I was going to pull true media up. Um, but they are also um, – they're, they're getting a lot of that time to sit there before the pressure even gets to them. So the time to pressure – um, from the Rams defensive line is 2.47 seconds, which is 21st in the NFL. So obviously that's not ideal. Now, what I will say is this was a year where they they willfully and knowingly gutted their defense. So obviously they were going to see holes show up and, and places where it would become very clear that they need to patch or or bring in other talent and 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 you know better talent than some of the pieces that they do have and some of the players that they do have, and and so I would say you know obviously I would think that pass rush is a a glaring uh, showcased point for them um, to continue to discuss to continue to talk about because of you know even with all of the bright upcoming talent I think Byron Young is going to be a really special player for them for a long time but they they cannot get consistent pressure. Um, and if you have two really, really strong pass rushers, one of them being Aaron Donald on the inside and one of them being Byron Young on the outside, um, you're seeing that it's still not enough to get that pressure consistently, um, with the way that teams are able to kind of flip the math advantage. It's just about figuring out how to recreate that mathematical advantage. And then also being able to, if you, if you want to continue to limit the passing game in a passing league, understanding how you can do that with better numbers on your side up front. And then so you can sort of flood more numbers on the backside uh, in terms of the, the the secondary to have it get cloudier and muddier for a quarterback to effectively pressure with four or five players uh, to to run the types of blitzes that I think the Rams have actually had more success with when they've been a little bit more creative in that regard. You saw that, especially in the second half of that game, some adjustments they made to their front, um, some different blitzes they ran with Ernest Jones, with a couple of the DBs. Um, you saw that creativity and, and trying to manufacture pressure, but you also need to come by it uh, honestly, right? You need to come by it naturally in in the talent of the players that you do have. And I think that you can really see that uh, in terms of, um, you know, just it, it's like what Rich and I have talked about, you know, at length. It's it's also this this is a year of also figuring out um, where exactly you need to fill, um, which I think, you know, <laughs> coming into the season, I think that anyone could have pointed to this this position group on the roster and said that right there. But um, it's more reiteration and, and more proof of that. Um, one thing that they did do, and, and as we know, third and long and third and medium has been a real issue for this defense. The time of possession in the first quarter was absolutely lopsided, like to the extreme. And part of that was 
the, uh, the Seahawks, they opened, I believe, four for four on third down. Um, the Rams all but shut them out. It was like one for eight in the second half and four for four in the first half in, in terms of their opening sequences. And um, the Rams essentially shut them out after that. So the adjustments were there. And, and obviously, um, you know, seeing Drew Locke at quarterback instead of Geno Smith probably helps. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can't argue that the defense really made some adjustments in that second half. And you could see it in real time, not just with the pressure they were doing, as I mentioned before, but also um, they did something really cool with their safeties. Uh, it's a sort of a, a, a different twist or a wrinkle in, in one of their dime packages. They sort of dabbled with it with Quentin Lake earlier in the year in a specifically a dime linebacker role. Well, okay, this time they increased it to four safeties and just two corners. Obviously, they were missing Kobe Durant, who was dealing with the shoulder stinger. So they said, okay, they have less they have less corners than they want to play. I think there's been some cries to see what Trey Tomlinson can do. I agree. It'd be great to see him on the field at some point this year to see what he's capable of. But in terms of who the coaching staff believes and wants to play, they have more experience at safety right now than they do at at corner in terms of healthy players. And so um, they put Akello and DK out on the outsides in their traditional roles at outside corner. And instead of putting a corner in their nickel or their star roles, um, or even a single safety into the the dime linebacker or the the larger star role. Instead, what they did was they had dime with two safeties. Um, in addition to their other two safeties, who were in the two high or the single high pre snap look, and so they basically had this like uh, malleable like changing group, right, of players who all could play different positions because John Johnson could drop into the box and and play that dime linebacker role. Quentin Lake was moving around with the motion players. You could see him traveling with the motion players, which is something he takes a lot of pride in. He had a really productive day for the Rams um, on Sunday and has been really productive in the snaps he's gotten so far this year. Um, Russ Yeast, they turned him into essentially a cover safety. So like he was, he had a pass breakup. Um, at, at one point he had a pressure, I, I believe, um, you know, Jordan Fuller played really well, sort of navigating that traffic. I think the first, the first, the really big play that, that, uh, Jordan and John Johnson, I believe John Johnson, Johnson was the other safety in, in there at that time. Um, that play that they, that they gave up, um, just didn't get their heads around in time. It looked like, but other than that, I mean, it was really interesting to see that malleability and they really did it on known passing downs and, and must pass scenarios, uh, as well. And I, I can imagine we see it increase actually over the, the next several weeks. Um, and they were really productive. They had a stop, a pass breakup. Um, obviously, if there was a fourth down that got converted after that, um, that sort of skewed the numbers a little bit in terms of what this this sub package actually did. Um, but it was really interesting. It was it's kind of like it, it did it served a dual purpose in that it you got more cover players, players that are veteran that are sort of positionless and like they, they could interchange and sort of confuse the offense a little bit. You got more of them on the field at one time. But then also um, the way that they could play this uh, this defense with that many with that many players who could be interchangeable linebacker safety you know cover players um, you know slot players on the field at one time it was almost like if the pass rush didn't get there there was a threat that they could drop totally collapse that like sort of zone or like the shell around the quarterback so like. It, it could literally just everyone could come down because there was more um, 
players who could be dropped into that like slot or linebacker role, um, who are quicker, who could move, who can get that movement into to help prevent the quarterback from seeing those escape lanes or from, you know, making them available to him in the first place. And I think that that could be really long-term a more effective way um, to play these third and longs with a quarterback who can move when you are not getting the right type of pressure or the secondary movement after the initial pressure when the quarterback is is flushed. Um, as you can tell, I kind of geeked out over this. I talked to Jordan Fuller about it in the locker room after the game, um, just on background, just to learn a little bit more about what they were doing. And I just thought that it was really creative. Um, he was excited about it. That He feels that the group is really, really creative. I mean, you could you can see that. It's a really good mix of experience and rising players and um, getting them on the field together at the same time. You could see it's something that works. Now, you know, it's a learning experience like anything else, but in that second half of that game, you could really see um, that it was something that works. And, and that's part of what they're trying to do here um, is figure out what works and do that thing. Um, you, you especially are seeing that on the defensive side. And my theory is, is because there's, it's a little bit out of necessity. They, uh, they enter this year knowing how limited they were in terms of their personnel. Um, when necessity strikes the Rams offense, um, in the sense that it did on Sunday, uh, without Cooper cup, or even at the beginning of the season without Cooper cup, um, necessity helped spark creativity in, um, delegation of the passing attack. How many receivers are touching the ball and targeted, um, Puka Nakua's emergence because it was a, it was a have to have it situation, um, by necessity. The defense has been in a necessity situation all year because of how depleted they are on that side of the ball. And as a result, I think this is my theory. Um, I'm not reporting this, but this is my theory and my opinion. I, I think that you're seeing more of that on the defensive side right now because um, they've lived there all year. You see them just trying stuff, right? It, it, Indianapolis, it was moving Aaron all along the entire line of scrimmage and running coffee house pressures and all kinds of crazy stuff. It is moving into a dominantly cover three pre-snap look. It is doing all these different things and trying more aggressive coverages with at least one side of your DB. So Akello, you'll see him way more aggressive in coverage um, pre-snap than they're used to seeing. That, you know, in 2022, the whole field would be a shell and this time they're mixing it up a little bit more this year. You're seeing a lot of different things trying stuff out of necessity because they know that they have to manufacture some of these things because they have a, a dearth of talent or they have guys who are growing and developing and aren't quite there yet to run sort of the, um, the maybe the traditionalist stuff that they've, that the, they've liked to pull from. But I think that that's exciting in a way because you're, you're seeing what people can do and, and you are in that mode where, um, you know, it, it's, it's, I think there's, it's the classic saying necessity is the mother of invention. And I think that's what you're seeing, especially on the defensive side. And I think at times you have also seen that on the offensive side. And I am curious um, that whether you will continue to see that um, moving forward on that side of the ball. Also, one thing I did find as an aside, um, the Rams are holding their opponents to an 86.9 passer rating. Passer rating is an imperfect stat for a lot of reasons that, um, will bore everyone and I won't get into it on this podcast. It is an imperfect stat, um, but that is 12th best in the league, which is interesting to me. Um, that shows, I think, a little bit of um, kind of what I'm talking about is 
you know, it's not going to be perfect. You've seen some, some big gaffes and some big breaks, but, um, but you've also seen like a really, I think overall, like very aggressive group. All right, guys, let's talk about empty sets. <laughs> this is, uh, this is the, I think one of the bigger topics of this week in part because of the second and seven play call, uh, at the goal line at the end of the game that, that Sean McVay called. Um, now I want to first, uh, talk about the Rams usage of empty sets before we get into, um, the other part of, of that discussion on the play call, because I do think that both of them, the reason why the empty sets have come up this week is, is in part because of that play call. Um, I, I have covered to those of you who read the athletic, thank you. And subscribers, I have covered that play call. Um, but we do owe it a discussion and do want to talk about it, but that also spawned sort of a, a renewed discussion over the Rams usage of empty sets. So, you know, me, if I find something I can kind of sink my teeth into, then I'm going to go after that thing. So, um, I spent a lot of, uh, Sunday night and then into most of Monday, just kind of poking around on, on this. And, um, you know, I, I, th it's a great empty. First of all, empty sets are a great tool to have for an offense, um, because it really helps, uh, give the quarterback and the receivers a lot of information pre-snap. Not only does it spread the field wide, um, but it also gives the quarterback and the receivers a lot of information pre-snap in that it can sometimes tell you what the man zone indicators are. So again, whether, what the coverage is going to be, it can, it can really sort of, um, pull the cup, pull the cover back on what that has to be because you're activating all of the eligible receivers at one time, meaning the defenses aren't necessarily going to, um, be able to rotate with your own, uh, play unfolding. They have to immediately sort of declare as what they are. And I think when you're in a league where defenses can do more than ever and, and, and everything is so, Fluid, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago with the tendency breaking, and and there's such a menu of plays and, and concepts available to uh, defenses that are more hybrid than ever. Uh, many defenses, most defenses across the league at this point, then something like that is super helpful when um, the quarterback needs to get information from what the defense is, and then also understand how to then flip the math advantage again with the eligibles, um, and it, it it spreads the field out and. There's all sorts of things that are um, very useful to have this as a tool. It is not a coincidence either because they are seeing uh, they are part of the reason why um, more hybrid defenses exist in the NFL. It, it's not a surprise that all of the Sean McVay system or the Kyle Shanahan system or whatever, whoever you, you want to call it, whatever, um, are in the top half or tied for being in the top half, um, in the league, uh, of, of usage of empty personnel sets, um, or excuse me, empty sets, um, and, and frequency of empty set usage. Um, you know, the Rams have used it on 61 plays. This is per true media, 61 plays this season. Um, they are averaging 5.6 plays out of empty this season, um, uh, you know, they're averaging about 34.7 pass plays per game. 5.6 of those on average are out of empty. And that ranks number 14 in the NFL in terms of frequency of use. Um, the really kind of striking thing that I saw was that 
their offensive success rate, again, this is per True Media, is 29.4% out of empty sets, which is 32nd out of the 32 NFL teams. So obviously that's a red flag. And so when you see when you see something like that where it's a, a really low success rate uh, out of a tool that the offense clearly likes to deploy, they especially uh, – when you have a quarterback that defenses are trying to confuse, um, it is a really helpful tool for that quarterback. Um, when you have receivers who can do a lot of different things off the line of scrimmage and still, you know, stay multiple, it is a really helpful tool for those receivers as well. When you have receivers like Cooper Cup, who has a lot of option concepts built into his route tree, um, having to decide quickly what type of 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 play he's going to run because he's getting information about the type of coverage he runs, that's really helpful um, to have as a tool. But Sean McVay will admit himself, and and it's it's very obvious that when you literally have it's quite literally, an empty backfield, you completely remove any idea that you're going to run. When you have a quarterback who does not run, uh, I mean, Matthew's been running around a little bit more, and kudos to him for that, but when you have a quarterback that's not known for being a quarterback who can run and have it be a threat in that regard, it, again, it strips that away. So you're in a known passing situation. Um, and, and so that is it's all it's all very interesting you know i can it is obviously a helpful tool but when you have a um you have a quarterback who's not necessarily going to be a threat in the run game you are then sort of broadcasting what you're going to be and and the at least the phase with which you are going to attack uh what it will be um the red flag for me was seeing the 29.4 success rate and it being as low as it was because the Rams were really successful in 2021 running empty concepts, like really, really successful. Their their initial, it was like, I think a seven and one open that year in part was because they were so successful in running those types of, I mean, they were kicking the door down. Um, this was when people talk about the run game imposing your will on a defense, the Rams were doing it with the pass game with a lot of that using those empty sets. This year, in 2022, we kind of just say, like, that year was an outlier in so many ways, it's hard to count it. But 2023, now they're not using it with, uh, I think, an abnormally high frequency. They're using it about the same as many of the successful passing dominant offenses are in the league. Um, and, and obviously, the, the huge difference is how little of a success rate it has. So I was I wondered about this because – Sometimes we look at analytics and we look at statistics and they don't show us enough context. And so in cases like that, I am very grateful, blessed, and fortunate to be in the role that I'm in where you see something that's potentially a problem. You, you need to hold uh, people accountable for that as, as a journalist. But then also you're curious about why it's happening and what that actually means. And so today, Monday, I asked Sean McVay about it, and I thought his entire response and dialogue was really interesting and informative, and I wanted you guys to hear it. A teaching question, if you don't mind. Um, you know, obviously, I, I understand that the, the empty sets are just one tool in a lot of different tools that you guys use for your offense. Um, but what information does going empty tell you, tell your quarterback, and tell your receivers? Ooh, uh, that's a... That we could talk about that for a while. You know, I, I think it depends on what type of formation that you're in, and um, you know, certain alignments that help kind of give you certain information. Um, 
you know, the main thing that I think empty formations enable you to be able to do is activate all five eligibles immediately, you know, and then there's certain empties that, you know, teams will look at where you get into, you know, chip looks where maybe you're non-vertical threats and people don't necessarily treat them as empty or they have certain adjustments that they can activate. But, um, you know, you do eliminate in a lot of instances the the threat of running the football. So it becomes a little bit more regulated in that fashion. But um, the different varieties of the way that you can distribute the field increases and the way that you can activate all of your eligibles, you know, coverages and, and defensive coaches are doing a, such a good job the last handful of years and really just in general. But I think it's especially prevalent over the last couple of years of being able to, you know, overlap, change the math. Um, and when you are forcing people to defend all five of your eligibles immediately and you show that you'll activate them, it disperses the coverage in a manner that can be sometimes favorable for yourself. But, you know, there's also tools and different things that defenses can present, um, you know, where you can put it back in their favor or they can put it back and they can they can grab the pen back from you. So um, these are things that we talk about a lot. Um, you know, but but for us, you know, you do give yourself the obvious option of it's it's known pass. Um, whereas you see some teams, you know, with with these guys, um, you know, you, you still have the legitimate option of maybe some of the quarterback draws or different things that can really put pressure on people like what you've seen Phillies and 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 things like that do. But it's uh, it's been something that's been favorable for us. Uh, but there's there's always pros and cons to both ends. The the information gathering is one thing, I, I, as, as you're saying, um, Matthew and Cooper, and we, you and I have talked about this too, about defenses, the menu of, of what they can do is more available to them than ever because of the way the league has changed. And um, is it, is it a, basically a, a helpful tool for the quarterback to say, okay, I can kind of dictate you into something that's more, that's more clear, or is that barking up the wrong tree? I mean, it depends on the scheme, you know, I mean, you can get like, I would say this, depending upon their philosophical approach, some defenses enable you to gather more, you know, information than others, you know, are they a zone aligned? Are they a man, man aligned type of team? Um, you know, but there's a lot of different tools that they can activate where they can change it back into your favor based on understanding, all right, how many are you protecting with? And, you know, what are the different ways that you want to be able to distribute the field? You know, I mean, you look at it, you know, going back to 21, we had an unbelievable amount of success getting into empty. Um, but it's like anything else, you know, you look at us and I, I want to believe Cincinnati, you know, had an incredibly high rate of success and empty. And that's always a part of, you know, the offense that you look at. Now, how much you actually activate is predicated on, all right, you know, how does it fit for us, number one? And then what are the different things that we're anticipating and expecting to try to um, you know, to try to be able to get out of that, you know, what's the intent of the call and the intent of getting into those things. And at what point are you talking early downs? Are you talking in known passing situations um, when you want to actually get into those formations? And so I know, you know, this, there's, there's just so many layers to it. Um, and without, and I don't know that I'd really be saying anything that would give away too much, but, you know, I'm always a little reluctant to kind of dive into too much philosophical stuff relative to, you know, what people can hear, whether it be, you know, hey, you're not saying anything that I don't know or not. I'm always just a little bit more careful in those types of, you know, settings. And hopefully, I think you understand that. Yeah, I, to I totally get that. But I do want to follow up and ask, um, you know, it's it's a dramatically different success rate for you guys. And again, I know that it's a tool of many tools. You're not using it at a abnormally higher frequency or anything like that. But 
um, the the success rate is is dramatically different, uh, lower than than what it used to be for you guys. Is that I think probably a lot of the ones that you're you're talking about for us are in like third and super long, you know, where you get double chips that it's taken off as empty. But I don't really consider that empty. That, that's a different form of empty, um, you know, for us, you know. But if you look at like against Philly, we had a lot of success going in empty where you're truly in five wides. But I think. You know, the empty that I think analytics would would go in depth about, it all is in the same bucket, which I get it, you know, but empty when you're in double chip presence and empty when you're in actual five wide, you know, that's a very different narrative and there's very different times, but our empty, I guarantee, I mean, like yesterday we would add a lot of empties. Those were mostly in third down and 15s, second and super longs. And we were the on those. And, you know, I, and I believe that that's not going to be very good. And there's a lot of reasons to that, um, you know, some of which I know I can do a better job of. We can do an overall better job of. But I think when we were activating a lot of what would be, you know, broken down as empty, those are in situations that percentage wise aren't successful downs across the league just in general, instead of just saying, all right, this is their empty set, empty success, um, you know, just as kind of one one part. That was the context that I was looking for. So I appreciate that, Sean. Thank you. Okay, so that was from his interview with media today. Uh, that was an exchange we had uh, near the latter part of uh, of his press conference. So the context here is that, you know, the analytics gathering mechanism, it will pull certain things together um, in, in buckets. So empty backfield, okay, that's all in one bucket. Okay, that makes sense. When you watch the tape, it, which that's why it was such a red flag to me, when you watch the tape, it was like that, I don't see that. I don't see that bad. If I try to watch other teams, all the stuff, I don't, you know, it's hard to keep up with everyone, but it's like, it, it didn't, it doesn't seem that bad. This offense is um, like 22nd in scoring. They've got a lot of issues. This offense has a ton of issues right now, as we know, but like that is dramatically bad. That number is bad. Right. And I triple checked it and all that, but you want to look at what the bucket is inclusive to. And I, so I think his, his answers there um, were informative in providing that context. I also thought, guys, that it was super interesting that he did admit that it made you, those types of things did ultimately make you more regulated in a sense because uh, there is no threat of the quarterback running. And he brought up teams like Philadelphia, the way they, they've used it, those types of things where um, you still have a run threat even with an empty backfield because the quarterback can run. So I thought that was super interesting. Um, we've obviously seen the league shift in that direction. Um, you know, it, it's just all of it, I, I'm not, using anything to draw like firm definitive conclusions of anything. I just think this is all really interesting. And it was all spawned by that second and seven play call where they did that out of an empty set. Um, so, so basically in some of the other context that he's providing here is like, obviously empty can be an advantage. It can be an information advantage. It can be an assertion, uh, in the passing game that the, the same way that being able to really physically run the ball down someone's throat can assert in the passing game, obviously in the run game, um, obviously in the past game, there's a lot of variables such as receivers getting open, execution, quarterbacks protection, chipping on the sides, like all these different things that do 
make a huge difference when you're deploying um, passing concepts out of an empty set, but it does give you so much information. And it does, in some cases, for some defenses, as he mentions, it depends on the scheme, for some defenses, does force them to declare what they are going to be post-snap to you, even pre-snap, so it gives you more information. Um, it can help you with matchup advantages in certain cases, too. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. But it also... Um, when when you're going empty in situations that are already not advantageous downs or like not statistically probable downs, um, as he mentions here, uh, it's you're going to have a low success rate. So I, I, I get what he's saying. Um, I think it's going to be a really interesting thing to study moving forward because um, I think the, one of the edges that the league has found, and, and this is, again, I'm not drawing a conclusion off of this, but I do think that one of the edges that some teams in the league have found is you can use this as a tool to gather that information without losing the edge or the threat of a run. That's possible now with how quarterbacks are now. And so I think that that's a really interesting thread uh, to just keep one eye on um, across the league. Um, over the next couple of years. So I want to get to the, the play call because we had this great dialogue over at The Athletic in, in the comment section. Again, the whole conversation about empty sets, um, and I hope you guys enjoyed that that conversation. You know, it's just like there's a lot of things wrong with this offense, and there's a lot of answers that need to be found, especially in certain buckets. Like this is one bucket where they do have to be better at execution, even if he's adding context to such a poor success rate. Um, there's a reason why they're in that poor success rate, which is setting themselves up on really bad, you know, down advantages and distant distance advantages or disadvantages because they are um, so far behind the sticks. Uh, they, they are not getting themselves good downs enough. It was something that they were able to really, you know, make money out of chicken, you know what, uh, early in the year because they were facing these crazy long downs and they had this crazy unsustainable success rate on those long downs. That's not a way to live. Uh, it's not sustainable. And you're seeing that. Um, so now it's like, okay, how do you fill in the rest of it? What, what small changes, what fixes do you need? So that's all a part of the larger conversation, but just like as a football fan, as a person who enjoys studying football and how things, uh, how problems are solved or not solved or how, um, the league changes and moves this second and seven play call situation brought up such an interesting, uh, mental exercise for me. And I hope you guys just genuinely enjoyed it as well. Um, you know, even though I think fairly people are mad and, and frustrated about the way things are. And I think that's fair. This offense is not good enough right now. It's not executing enough. There's some issues with every facet of what this offense is from, uh, the decision-making all the way down to the execution, to the depth, to the talent, there's all kinds of things. Right. But I did think that was really fascinating. And this is a tool that is not going away because defenses are going to are continuing to do more and it's not going away. So you have to figure out how to improve your success rate there while not, uh, using it as, uh, as a crutch, um, in terms of gathering information, but also be keeping yourself as multiple as possible in every phase if you're going to use this as a tool. Um, it's just interesting to think about what that balance is and, and how that balance will be struck. So, But it all started because the second and seven, um, I wanted to read to you guys, if you haven't seen it yet, what McVeigh's response was. I asked him post-game, 
of my two questions that I got post game, uh, I asked him about the second and seven and the third and goal. Uh, in the, excuse me, in the third and seven, the play calls uh, under the two minute uh, at the end of the game. Now infamous play calls, uh, although more infamous had they lost that game, by the way, which we all know. Um, and then also about specific issues with the offense. I did not get a specific answer to the latter question. I got a very specific answer to the former question, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so this is what he said about passing, calling a pass to Pukunakua um, out of an empty set on second and seven at the goal line. He said, really just trying to score a touchdown. They were down two, two at that point. Um, really just trying to score a touchdown, figuring what's the best play. We were, we'd been having success running the football. From the seven-yard line, you could have a chance to be able to do that, but we were really trying to score a touchdown. Then we had some substitutions where guys weren't available, felt like the screen on the third down had a chance to be able to get punched in, looked like we had some space right there, and you get the benefit of the clock rolling because you feel like it's a high-percentage play. If we make that play, which, and he says, I'll call that over and over again, feel good about that call, got a really good player on an ISO in-breaking route. Again, you get the isolated matchup because you're in empty, essentially, uh, against the type of defense that Seattle was playing. If you are spread out like that in empty, you get the matchup. He, they basically were trying to leverage the matchup so that Puka would get sort of the, the automatic, um, you know, high percentage inbreaker there with isolated coverage in short in short yardage. Um, again, so you're not necessarily thinking, okay, a play action is maybe a longer developing play. You want to get this out quickly in short yardage so that the defender doesn't have a, t- a chance to reposition himself. Himself, it's if it's uh, if there's a running back in the backfield, maybe it's a, a little bit of a longer developing play because there's a play action element involved, um, and, and you're and you're maybe giving the defenders a little bit more time back there where play action would normally make them hesitate on a full field or even a partial field. This is like short yardage situation, so you're getting the ball out quick. Um, okay, so back to Sean. He says if he catches that, he might fall into the end zone or the ball is on the one yard line, and now you have a lot of different options. The most important thing is we wanted to not leave ourselves susceptible to not just going up one point where a field goal wins it for them. In those moments, we felt like the touchdown was more important than the time because of how much clock would still be left over, no matter how that ended up playing out. And then Matthew Stafford basically reiterated what Sean McVay said, said, love the second down call, opportunity to get one-on-one with Puka. Uh, Tariq Woolen, Reek Woolen made a nice play on the ball. Um, would love to have thrown and caught that one for a, t- a touchdown. And he says, and we'd all be hooting and hollering on that one, but it didn't happen. Um, and then keep the clock running on the third down, paraphrasing that last part, but that's what he was saying. So I just, I, I think it was interesting. And, and again, I'm explaining, I, I, I've heard, I've heard it all at this point. I'm explaining what, what he's, what they're talking about and really feel like this is a, this is a total, you could you could think one thing or the other. I think it's fair. I think it's totally fair to think both. I think it is one hundred percent fair to say just run the freaking ball in that situation. One hundred percent fair. But also, like I think when people are saying that, they're also in a way also saying have a run game where <laughs> you can really make an impact running the ball right there in that situation. So I totally get that. I also understand what they're saying here because they basically set up. The um, including out of the empty set for the the reasons that I very rapidly said pre- just a second ago, they they set up 
what they felt was a play that considered two likely outcomes in order to get a touchdown. One outcome being um, hits him underneath and he basically has it as a, as a yards after catch play and falls forward into the end zone right there at the goal line because it's coming out quick when he's right at the goal line there. Or the DB makes a good play. He's not trying to necessarily break up the ball, but the DB makes a good play and he ends up tackling Puka down at the one. And in that case, same as it would a run play, um, the clock would keep going. Because it instead was a really great play by Reek Woolen. He broke up the pass instead. Um, and, you know, Seattle has some experience with this in their history, by the way, <laughs> because uh, Reek Woolen was able to break up the pass. That was the, in, in their minds, seem to be, based on these comments, the least likely outcome, especially also factoring in that you are you have an incredibly twitchy officiating crew that was throwing flags from outer space, <laughs> you know, on, on pretty much for both sides, basically. And so if you're the DB in a short-yarded situation like that, to make that play, you're probably pretty wrapped around the receiver. You know, you're kind of thinking th- that that's a low-probability outcome that he does break up that play. Um, the higher probability outcome, you're probably thinking, okay, we've because we're an empty, we've got the isolated matchup that we want, and we know that the ball is coming out of quick out quick, so we don't necessarily need to worry about empty pressure. We don't really pressure against empty. We don't really need to worry about uh, you know the, the a play action or anything that again would would make the play just a little bit longer developing than what they wanted it to be, even though play action is awesome please hear me. Like I'm, I'm not saying play action is bad. I think it's awesome. They need to do more of it. That's my opinion. (laughs) They're very successful when they do it. Um, but specifically talking in this short yardage situation where they're thinking about time and they're specifically thinking about the leverage points here and scoring the touchdown. Um, and then the other thing that was interesting is it really felt like in their explanation that they, you couldn't have one call without the other, right? Because if you miss that first call, there's still a built-in clock clock killer in a sense that gets them to burn the timeout, which is that screen, which still has a small potential of becoming a hugely positive play, um, more so in their minds, not, okay, in their minds, just explaining, don't kill the messenger, is still, would have still been more probability, a higher probability of a potential touchdown than a uh, a run with Royce Freeman or Daryl Henderson. Instead, it was a screen to Daryl Henderson, who's a really good receiving running back. Um, and uh, there was – go back and watch the play. It was an interesting decision. You could maybe see that uh, there was a potential for a touchdown there, um, but but it happens, right? And and the, the clock is going, and that's sort of like you can't have – you couldn't have one without the other, it didn't feel like, right? Which is super interesting. We know that Sean McVay sequences plays. This is why people see the third and long – run play or the screen or the draw it's it, it resets the sequencing it's it's like a whole thing um he's talked about it before at, at some point i'll go dig it up and we'll play it on here but that's not what this is about right now so then i, I and again just kind of explaining what the perspective of this call is and, and it's interesting because um like I think it should be totally litigated i think it's so fair for this whole thing to be litigated because again it you would think that you're not just the simplest thing is to run the ball, <laughs> right? But I can understand their perspective on 
what they're talking about here with all of the contextual elements and understanding the leverage that they were going to dictate based on the fact that they were in the empty formation. Um, so, so I thought that that was super interesting. Um, I think part of it on the other side, I wonder, I, I don't believe that if you're Sean McVay, you think Geno Smith is coming back in the game at that point. So I think you're thinking, okay, even if, you know, this pass play fails and then you're still killing a little bit of the clock with the run play. Okay. And then you hit the field goal and that's not the outcome that you necessarily wanted, but you still have the go ahead field goal here. Um, then even with, it was something, someone in my mentions did the math, Todd G shout out to Todd G, um, like a minute and a half left and no timeouts, but you need, uh, only a field goal, uh, or excuse me, without the touchdown, it's a minute and a half, uh, excuse me, Todd G, I don't want to butcher what you're saying. Okay. Touchdown being, having the touchdown, meaning it's, uh, about a minute 47 left with the timeout. But if you think Drew Locke is coming back into the game, and, and the tide of this game totally changed when Drew Locke was in the game instead of Geno Smith, by the way. Um, and the Rams started rolling at that point and intercepted him and, and were pressuring him really well and, and all of that. So if you're Sean McVay and you're not necessarily thinking that Geno Smith is going to try to come back into the game, instead you're going to get Drew Locke, then maybe you do go for the risk, the, maybe the riskier call or the call that uh, you think gives you a higher percentage of specifically a touchdown less so the clock, which he openly said he wasn't thinking about the time. He was thinking about the touchdown. Um, okay. So wipe all of that. None of that's true. You, you go, f you have the field goal. Um, and, and, and so, and then you also have, uh, no timeouts and you could have potentially with, with a couple run calls, you could have potentially still had a field goal and still had, uh, uh, no timeout. So like you, you basically you're, you're, end, you're left with the same result, but with more time because the second down did not execute in the way that they had hoped that it would, uh, the outcomes that it, that, you know, they were hoping or the, the, the more higher probability outcomes that they believed would happen. Again, when you combine the leverage and the map, the matchup and the isolation that they believed they attained and, and did attain and achieved on the, with their pre-snap alignment, and then the concept of the pass play and, and all of that. I'm rambling quite a bit here. I understand you guys can roast me for this like a Thanksgiving turkey uh, later. But it's a fascinating conversation because it also, to me, it like everything that he was saying and how emphatic he was about the call, um, which I can't, you know, trying to score a touchdown there. I have a lot of people in my Twitter mentions constantly who are upset because he plays for field goals <laughs> through the first half of this year. And so I think that we're burying the lead here a little bit and it shouldn't be buried if they lost the game. I mean, they really got, they caught a break here um, with that missed field goal. And so this, this point needs to be delivered regardless, but it certainly, you can, you would absolutely, um, you know, hold, hold, hold blame and, and all of that on a much more significant level if they had lost this game but I don't want to bury the plot in like, I, this theory is developing here that it's like, oh, wait, that guy played for the touchdown. And also, by the way, he played for the touchdown earlier in the game. Again, unsuccessful, bad play call on the fourth down and then unsuccessful ex ex execution on the run game, on the three run calls before that, 
when they get a shitload of penalty yards and are at the goal line, essentially trying to run the ball from like what the three or the two or what, whatever it was and can't do it and then pass on fourth down and fail, but, but going for the touchdown again. So it's like, this is where we have this really interesting discussion of process and results. So I think if we extrapolate one from the other, a coach who has decided at this point and, and it has, is clearly in one sample size, one game sample size, making an effort to now call for and play for the touchdowns versus playing for and settling for the field goals, even though you can, guys, you can 100% argue, take the points, okay, I, that's, that's fine. I'm not telling you what is wrong or what is right. I'm just, we're just talking, okay? <laughs> like, it, it, it's interesting that this is now, because he so emphatically talked about this in such detail post-game, it set off that little radar in my head where it's like, is this a shift here? Is this something in his in their self-scout and his personal self-scout when they went back over the bye week and they saw the Indianapolis game, take your foot off the gas, play for field goals, um, the uh, San Francisco game, needless field goal, like the, you know, certain things that have happened. And then over the course of his entire career, the amount of win probability, like among the worst in the league, fourth, fourth most amount of win probability just left on the on the board um, because of specific fourth down decision making, not result decision making. Um, I wonder if some of that, the theory that's starting to unfold is, are you seeing a little bit of a shift in a coach that, again, some in some parts by necessity, this was a game they could not lose. What change starts to happen out of that necessity? And I do wonder if you're, if his uh, emphasis post game on this call and on all of this had a, has a little something to do of what we might see more of in terms of the process itself. The results have to be better. The execution has to be better. The call selection in some cases has to be better. But the process itself and whether that's changing is going to be very interesting to monitor moving forward. And with that said, I have rambled on for way too long. It is so hard doing this solo, guys. I appreciate you guys bearing with me and for uh, coming into the depths of my weird ass brain with me, uh, thinking about some of these concepts and theories and, and pulling at some of these threads. Um, I feel incredibly awkward doing this by myself, but um, I am really appreciative for all of the kind words people have said anytime I have been on a solo show. Um, next week, I believe Rich Hammond will be back with me. We have sorely missed his presence. Um, and, and I think that it's gonna be um, a fun, a fun week, uh, trying to see what, what's going on with Cooper cup and, and trying to, uh, watch this team prepare for a trip out to the desert. Um, you know, if you celebrate happy Turkey day, if you do celebrate, um, I hope that regardless you're getting to see family. I hope you're getting to see, um, friends, loved ones. I hope you are being good to yourselves. I hope you're being good to each other. Um, I hope you're staying caffeinated. Hope you're staying hydrated. Catch you next time. 